0: Hello, everyone. My name is Jared Altick, and I'm a chaplain with the police department. The Hey Chaplain podcast brings you stories and wisdom about life in law enforcement, giving support and encouragement to those who wear the badge. Today I want to share with you the story of Doug Monda. Doug was a Florida cop who, after being injured, suddenly had the weight of the job collapse in on him, driving him to despair and, eventually, to putting a gun to his head and pulling the trigger. Doug survived, and today he walks us through his compelling story how he survived, and how he then wanted to build a program that would be better than the mental health journey he went through. Doug now runs a nationally recognized nonprofit that helps first responders navigate mental health challenges. His goal is to teach cops how to survive first. This episode contains discussion of suicide attempts. Listener discretion is advised. Here's Doug Monda. Well, welcome, Doug. I'm glad you're on the show. How are you today?
1: I'm wonderful. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Um, so can you tell me what your law enforcement background was like? I mean, give me kind of the, the nickel tour of, of what you did in law enforcement.
1: Okay. Um, so really, it's pretty simple. I, I was recruited to my department to be on a SWAT team. Um, I made uh, went did about the FTO and the six months to train in, and went straight to a street crimes unit and a SWAT team, and then I bounced around from street crimes to drug agent to a gang task force to uh, every task force known to man, ATF, FDLE here in Florida, DEA. Oh wow, things right. of that nature. Uh, I I finished my career. Um, on SWAT and as an agent spent pretty much my entire career in that capacity,
0: okay, okay, now you were a professional athlete before that, weren't you?
1: Yes, I was yeah, I was a soccer player turned triathlete
0: oh wow, okay, okay, and so uh used to high performance high speed, you know get <laughs> things done that kind of that kind of role
1: oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, sir.
0: <laughs> All right. Now, as you went through this, doing a lot of a lot of work in narcotics, how did law enforcement begin to change you?
1: Ooh, so, you know, I would say much like everybody else. Sure, I mean, you can prepare yourself for law enforcement. You know what you're getting into, and I've had people say that. Oh, you know, he knew what he was getting into. Yeah, you do, but you don't. Because yeah. you never can plan for what's going to happen every day. You can kind of generally have an idea, um, you know, guns and robbers and bank, ro- you know, cops right. and robbers right. and all right. that kind of stuff. And, but um, w- what took place for me is, you know, I'm a Cocoa Beach little surf kid. Grew up as an athlete. Grew up in you know in the east coast of Florida everything was sunny days and surfing. And, you know, I was that guy called everybody dude. And, you know, they used to laugh at me. He called me Jeff Spicoli. I had long blonde hair and, and, um, but I had a, a an incredible work ethic. Good. Yeah. And, and, uh, when I was ending my athletic career, law enforcement, I always wanted my entire life. I wanted to be a SWAT guy. Um, I come from, you know, I was born in the sixties. So I come from that seventies era, the original SWAT show. And, Always wanted to be that guy and do that type of stuff. And, and when I got to law enforcement, it was great, and I was having a lot of fun and for a high-speed guy like me, it fit the, it fit the job. you know I could I could go 100 miles an hour. But what took place that I wasn't prepared for um, was the inhumanity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't realize that. And for me, um, you know, I'm a little different than the average cop. I didn't write tickets, um, you know, turned my ticket book in that I got when I got hired and turned it back in when I retired. (laughs) And uh, never wrote tickets, anything like that. Grew up in a very Christian household, um, you know, so I had a lot of strong beliefs. And then um, within my, I think my first or second year, I became a sniper. Um, and my uh, as a sniper on the SWAT team and then I also became a Blackwater sniper and so I did more stuff than the average person did in that capacity and so I was uh, you know I basically was deployed to Hurricane Katrina I protected uh, dignitaries um, you know from uh, vice presidents all up, you know all that type of stuff so I was uh, pretty pretty spread thin and experienced a lot of things that the average person did not And in those travels, especially uh, Hurricane Katrina, I watched people killing each other and robbing each other for TVs and things like that. And it was that inhumanity of the way people uh, treated each other, and uh, especially when I went to Louisiana. You know, yeah, the young yeah. TV, you saw the people on the roofs. That was very far and few. What really was taking place there was robbery and rape and murder and people stealing and killing for, you know, you know we saw two guys do it for a flat screen TV. They were walking in waist deep water with this TV. Didn't have a house to put it in, but had a TV. <sighs> and that inhumanity has never left my mind. I didn't realize at the time, you know, we all know we watch TV and, you know, I'm old school. So I grew up with the news and newspapers. I'm like these kids today, but we grew up watching that. And, but it was never to the magnitude that I, that, that I experienced. And, uh, it That was the first initial thing that I experienced was I was not prepared for the amount of inhumanity that I was going to be exposed to. Plus, yeah. I worked in a very, very violent town, number six in the nation most years for violent crime per capita. So, you know, on top of that, on top of all the other things I was doing, that was, you know, the, that was it. Yeah, I, every that was
0: every a, cop says they're tough, but but when you <laughs> just see cruelty and and uh and a wasteful, you know, just destructive attitude that that we sometimes see. I mean it, it's it's mm-hmm. hurtful it, it It really is hurtful. I mean, you can be prepared yeah. to go fight the bad guy, but but when you just see like cruel treatment of a child, that kind yeah. of thing that kind of thing just wounds us.
1: Yeah. oh absolutely man it just it was uh, you know i'm okay with bad guys and as a sniper you know i i didn't hand out cupcakes you know we all know <laughs> it, right so people go, like, what's it like being i wasn't handing out cupcakes i was my job was to eliminate threats and you know for the most part and uh it's just different you know there's bad yep. guys and then there's vic it's the victim's you know, I'm, I'm prepared for bad guys. I'm a highly trained person, and, and I had no problem uh, either eliminating or dealing with uh, any kind of bad guy. And we're talking, you know, there's bad guys. There's rapists and murderers and child abductors. you know, that level of, of people. Um, but the victims, man, it's like, you know, I have a heart, man. Yeah, most yeah. people might, that know me might say different, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I do, man. It was my first couple months as a cop. Uh, On Christmas Eve, man, I I experienced a little 12-year-old girl riding home Christmas Eve, man, all excited to see Santa and got creamed into a concrete power pole. Yeah. Killed her. Yeah. And that's the type of stuff that I don't care who you are. You have never prepared for that type of, you know, that part of the victim is what I'm getting at.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you take these these moral injuries and and these these wounds that you carry with you, and they begin to accumulate as the years go yeah. by. But but part of your story hinges on on an injury, right? Yeah. Yeah. And tell, can you tell me about that? Yeah. Sure.
1: So, um, you know, it, through my most of my career, even as a cop, you know, I was still a. Uh, at a world level uh, triathlete. So I was doing Ironman triathlon if you know what that is. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh so you know competing on that level I was completing, competing in some brackets you know at top 25 in the world at one time. And um you know I have a national championship, I have a world championship, so clearly at that level. And that was really my entire life. I was a super jock. Yeah, that's what my parents used to call me. <laughs> and uh, and I'm that old. Do you, do you remember the do you remember Super Jog? The doll like the stretch Armstrong? Oh, right, 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 right. Oh, that's where that came from. <laughs> that's some old school stuff right there. I just remember that. But uh most people don't know that. But, but a big uh, part
0: of your identity was, was was being an athlete and being high yeah. performance, right?
1: It was. I was you, you know, you have a title even as a cop like you. You're the chaplain. You're, you're Jared, the chaplain. And so I was Doug, the soccer player. Then I became, you know, Doug, the surfer and Doug, the triathlete and Doug, the SWAT guy. And It's an identity. Every cop has it. And I say this to cops when I'm on stage. I'm like, Hey man, I'll pull somebody out and I'll go, what's your name? They'll go, Oh, my name's Mike. I'm like, when's the last time even your parents introduced you as Mike? I I guarantee they introduce you as, this is my son, Mike, the cop. And they all say, absolutely. So that, you're right, that identity. And I was used to that. And I was, you know, like every other pro athlete and any kind of, you know, I had the ego and I still do probably. And my wife probably tell you, I do. (laughs) And and so the reason I'm explaining that to you is because... I, I use, that was my lifesaver. So, you know, most guys, some, some guys and girls might come home from work and, and have a beer. Some might smoke a cigarette. Some might play golf. Some might throw a fishing pole. Usually somebody's got something. Some might play video games, whatever it is. For me, it was running and my life. So here's an example. I swim, you know, I'm still active today. Um, finally after all my injuries, um, you know, I average twenty plus twenty thirty thousand meters a week just swimming oh wow three to five hundred miles a week on a bike and fifty to seventy miles running, raising a family, being a husband, and working forty to 60, 80 hours a week as a SWAT guy, getting called out five, six times a week for SWAT. And, and so my whole life was that high speed. Right, And then, so as the story goes, is one particular day, and I was driving down the road, and this call came out of a reckless truck trying to run people over. And I am that guy. They, You know the title, The Magnet. I won't cuss on your show. My wife gave me strict <laughs> orders not to cuss on the show. But um, I, I was the magnet, and lo and behold, there this truck pulls right out in front of me, literally five feet out in front of me. The one I you start were looking for, straight. or a different one? Yeah, the one that came out. I uh. wasn't looking. You know, it just came out in front of me. I was driving, and so this truck, and I'm watching it, and it's a big full size uh, Ram p- Dodge pickup truck, and it's driving super erratic. And it's go- and what it was doing it would go into yards, it would run over mailboxes oh it tried to run over some people, and then I'm chasing it, and we get to an intersection, a four way intersection, and the truck spins out in the middle of the intersection, and so I worked in a predominantly as most people call it, the hood um you know twenty thousand people, seventeen thousand were government housing, so you get the picture mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah, and so when people wreck in those type of environments, they like to get out and run. And, you know, when you're a world-class triathlete, you don't want to run for me. You, you know, you better pack a lunch. So that right, was fun. Right. So I loved when people ran because it was like a joke for me. Like, okay, I'd test myself. I'm going to catch him in 30 seconds. <laughs> and so I jumped out of the car thinking this guy's going to get out and take off running. And he didn't. It was like oh. the one time it didn't happen. And all of a sudden the truck started coming straight for me. And I knew instantly why he, he didn't have to come towards me. He had four roads he could have took off down and got the jump on me, right? Right. So the truck's coming towards me. I go, man, and, you know, then everything and any, any cop who's ever been in this situation a shooting, anything like that, life slows down to slow-mo. And it's coming at me, and it's coming at me, and I am like, wow, man, this guy is going to try to run me over. So, I'm like, "Okay, I'm a shooter, and you know it's not my first rodeo, and the truck's coming at me, and I'm so I, you know I'm putting my gun, and you think about, I don't miss you know i'm a I'm a precision shooter, but I can't see the guy driving the truck, but I can see the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. The reason I couldn't see is the sun was glaring. I'm in Florida right, right. And, you know it's you know, as I always say, it's hotter than three hills in Florida <laughs> with that sun, right, and right. so the sun. Um, it's in the window, but I see the steering wheel. So I go, okay, man, just shoot the steering wheel. You're going to catch him in the chest or raise up a couple inches from the steering wheel and pop him in the head. Right. And just as I about to do that, a little head pops up behind the steering wheel. It was an 11-year-old kid. Oh, my. And when his head popped up, I saw my oldest son. Like I, but all of a sudden, I, I just, I remember it vividly, obviously it changed the course of my life. Right. And I just froze and went, oh my God, it's a little kid. And the little kid plowed me, it plowed into my car, which plowed me into an oak tree. Hmm. Um, And that was the catalyst. Suffered a severe back injury. Didn't know it at the time. Had some bone fragment uh, in my spinal cord. I had ruptured disc, and I also suffered a severe uh, brain injury. Hmm. And that is, this, that is the injury that forever changed my life to this day. Um, I'm still impacted by it. So at that point, the world champion trial, I was actually training for the world championships for Ironman, uh, which would have been in Hawaii at the time.
2: Right.
1: And so everything went down the toilet, so to speak, at that hmm. moment when that kid hit me. And that was the start of the downfall.
0: Now, from there, you're going to have time off because you're injured. And that often really affects an officer to be out of his routine and to be away from his coworkers and that kind of thing. And like in a lot of cases, depression became part of your story, too. Can you tell me about that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's exactly how, how it went. You know, it's, I was never prepared to sit on a couch, Hmm. never sit on couch, wasn't a TV watcher, wasn't a video game player. You know, I was, I was uh, moving at a high rate speed. And so you're right. I got injured. Um, I had to go home uh, for the first time. And, you know, I'm the type of guy that I didn't ever take lunch. Didn't really have to most times in my career, but I wasn't a lunch taker. I didn't call out sick. Um, I went to work when I was sick. I'd want to stay home when I felt good. So I could go surfing. So I, you know, I just, I was a worker, right. And I went home and I got put on a couch, couldn't do, could barely move, could barely function. And what took place, far as I know. Now I'm not PhD kind of guy or anything like that. I, I can only go by my life's experience. But I sat on that couch, and what took place was every horrible thing that I had encountered in my career, every all the trauma, all the dead things, all the shootings, all the murder, you know, all the stuff. I finally, for the first time, had time to think about all that. Mm. Now you think about it, of course. Sure, but I had sure. plenty of time to think about it. And yeah. so obviously that was making the depression worse. And then, you know, how did I deal with going, okay, I'm never going to be a world champion. I'm never going to be an athlete. They're telling me I'm never going to run. I can barely, at this point, Jared, I'm, I, I can't even wipe my own butt when I go to the bathroom. That's, yeah. how, that's how bad it was. Yeah. So I'm sitting there with for the first time, you know, requiring help. Yeah, um, from people. I had recently gotten divorced um after 17 years, like every other cop, right? You right. know, the marriage went to because I was so busy at work doing my job, I was never home doing my job. Yeah. And uh it finally took a toll on me. So all these things, man, just instantly started piling up on me. And I wasn't, you know, I uh I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't taught that in the police academy, I was never taught that. As a as in work, um, even with a background in spec ops, that's not what we talk about. We talk about taking a bullet and moving forward, and you know, that hut hut mentality, yeah, yeah. some call And um, depression and PTSD and all those things, they were just n- never in my vocabulary until that moment. But I wasn't aware, and I wasn't educated in. So I, I, you know, I didn't know better to reach out. I didn't know better to call anybody. You know, all my guys are trained assassins. (laughs) So you know, they're just gonna be like, all right, man, let's go out drinking and let's go do this or whatever chronic um, cockamamie idea that one could come up with. And that was the start of the downfall right there.
0: How far into it, I mean, if you can help me with the timeline before you maybe thought you wanted out or you wanted uh, the pain or the frustration or the loss of identity before you wanted that to end, uh, when do you think those thoughts first began?
1: Um, I'm going to take a wild guess and yeah, just to jump off talk- topic, you know, I've with a you know, i've had brain surgery so traumatic brain injury and i've had a couple strokes from it and so my memory and timelines are are really bad i always okay. tell that to everybody when i get on there but sure I'm, sure i'm guessing six months
0: okay, okay. I, it,
1: yeah probably realistically jerry probably a couple months you know but right, i I, right. I can really say probably about six months into it
0: but you've lost so, some of that and so it's hard yeah. to get specifics right
1: yeah. yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah I don't. I, it's really, I, I even have a hard time reading and writing. As you can tell in the past week, you usually get one, two words from me when you, when you send me a text <laughs> right. or an email. Right. I tell everybody if you get a, an, an email from me and it's more than five words, it's from Karen, not me. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so that, you know, it, it, that has left some long term effects. But um, I would say it was a short amount of time. And the pain, uh, you know, the pain just got to a point, the whole package got to a point where it was unbearable. And I, I, even in my couple of videos, you know, I would say that type of pain, mental pain and physical pain in my, you know, it's come to me that they kind of go hand in hand. And I use the example, you know, mental pain's easy. You know, just use the example as a wife for a husband, right? If your wife looks good, she's happy as can be. Mm-hmm. If she doesn't think she looks good, she's miserable.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. And, right? And so there, that's the mental part of it. And, you know, so when you're constantly mentally, dis, uh, you know, uh, depressed and sad and all this, it, it's almost like, you know, you don't want to get out of bed and then your body gets achy and causes physical pain. Well, in this case, you know, the physical pain caused the mental pain. And there's, you know, at, at that point in my life, you couldn't, you couldn't medicate that pain. There, you know, I'm not a pill eater and I'm, you know, any of that type of stuff. I, I, I'm terrified of, of drugs and things like that. But I, um, I, they couldn't medicate the pain that I was going through physically and mentally. Right. And I tell everybody, when I'm telling the story on stage, I'm like, listen, man, I go, everybody remembers September 11th where these guys were jumping out of windows and it wasn't because the building was getting ready to collapse. It was because the amount of pain they were enduring from the heat and yeah. the fire and stuff. Yeah. And I go, that's the level of pain that, uh, that I had been through. Now I've been, man, I've got holes punched through me. You can't even imagine stabbings, broken bones. I've had 22 hours. I'm no stranger to pain. Yeah. And, you know, when you run full speed for 140 miles, I'm, I'm. Trust me when I tell you. I, I know pain. Yeah. This is a, this is a pain that is indescribable
0: Yeah. And, and there is, is a type it, of pain that it's not that you're wanting to jump to your death. It's that you're wanting to get away from that pain.
1: Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know. And and I, when I have conversations with people, and they go, "Man, I'll tell you, my back was in such bad shape. I just wanted to shoot myself." They don't realize what they're saying.
0: Yeah. What no. There's, that, there's there's an that, actual pain that could actually lead to yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: It's that kind of pain, man. And that was, uh, what I had never
0: experienced before in my life. Hmm. Hmm. Can you tell me about the first time that you tried to take your life?
1: Yeah. So I had, um, I'd made it, you know, I, I was going through a hard time, you know, but unfortunately we all know work, work comp is a nightmare to deal with. And, yeah. you know, I had, they didn't want to fix me and they, you know, they wanted me to, eat pills and do physical therapy and i I just wanted to get fixed and go back to work and they were giving me the song and dance so i had to sit there for quite some time to endure this pain and um i just you know at that point it was like i am a i'm an athlete and a warrior and i'm more of a warrior at heart than anything and that warrior that was instilled in me um is what gave me the strength to be the athlete i was you know the iron man athlete and do that so i have this whole you know whole thing you know about that i was raised and brought up in i come from a big military family and i my am you know and i say this to this day i'm i was brought to this earth to serve whether in a good way or a bad way or whatever you know god put me on this planet to serve and and that was something that impacted me because I didn't want to be the guy that sat in a wheelchair and sat on a couch and have people take care of, nor did I want to be the guy that couldn't surf or couldn't run or do all those type of things. Everything had been taken from me in the blink of an eye, and uh, I could not handle that. And then, it, you know, it, it, the depression, you know, when you're depressed, you manifest everything. No yeah. big secret, you know, it's the little things when a you know, little thing happens to you when you're in a good mood, it's no big deal. But when it happens to you, when you're depressed in a bad mood, it's the world's coming to an end. And my world was ending and it was ending in the in a way that I, I wasn't prepared for and uh, in the pain and the misery. And so I wasn't going to be any good to my kids I wasn't gonna be able to play with them or provide for them. Um, you know, I know, you know, you know, when you, when you're out of sight, you're out of mind, right? All your buddies are raising their kids and working and you know, then you're like, nobody cares about me anyway. And I just need to get out of here. And that was the, um, that is what took place in my life and never in a million years that I ever think that I would ever be at this place. And, My life was great, man. I had a beautiful home on the beach. I had Porsches and motorcycles. I'd made money in my day as an athlete and doing other things. So it's not like, you know, uh, it was, you know, I was starving and all these other things that people experience. I'd had uh, a wonderful life but it wasn't what I, what I dreamt for. It wasn't what I planned for at this point. You know, I, I make an example. Some people go, you know, think, Oh, you know, money's everything. Man, that's nothing. I could care less about yeah. any of that. Yeah. I wanted to be able to move and, and live my lifestyle. It, that was irrelevant at the time, but
0: yeah, you were so. injured in, in body and mind and, yeah. and in your identity and emotionally. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's a, you were, yeah, you, you, you've, you you had a, had a large burden to carry. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, too large for me, um, you know, at the time. And uh, so to make a super long story, you know, I had I'd been dealing with work and I'd been dealing with these other things and, um, you know, in this whole process. And I just was like, the only way I'm ever going to get away from this pain is I've got to leave. Hmm. And I meant it and i didn't ever tell nobody i wasn't the type of guy i'm still not the type of guy that calls people and complains and you know bows me and and i just made up my mind and um i had a lot of resistance at the time you know i had a crappy girlfriend at the time my work was giving me a hard time um you know to, you know you, they don't mean it but they're hey when you coming back to work we're posting overtime and i'm like dude i'm in a wheelchair man right. like what right. don't you get right that type of stuff and then um so anyway they they forced me to go get some help um you know like uh, they call it a baker act here in florida so you know they they, they knew I was not doing bad. This girl that I was dating had called a police chief friend and said, hey, I think he's going to kill himself. Well, the next thing you know, the cops are at my house and they're questioning me. And, and I got offended. I got insulted. You know, I'm a leader of a SWAT team at the time. And, you know, I just was very unstable. the best thing that ever happened to me is them carting me off, but they did. And so I'm also the type of guy that's like, if I set my mind to do something, you're not stopping me. Right. And I got a crappy attitude. Like most, most guys like me, and I'm like, (laughs) Oh, you want to, you're going to tell me I can't do something. so when they brought me back to my house that day, and I had already known that when I was gone that day, they went into my house and they took all my weapons. They took my police stuff. You know, my girlfriend at the time said, Yeah, come in his house and take all his stuff. Mm. And so I was super upset about that. I felt uh, violated. Sure. Yeah. Betrayed and all those things. And so when I got home, um, my Porsche was in the driveway, and then Porsche had a a particular Porsche that had hidden compartments, the door handles on most Porsches, not that it's a big deal, but um, I always tell the cops this. So if they ever pull a Porsche over, they know that Porsche door handles are hidden compartments. <laughs> but um, I had my gun in there. Now, nobody knew it. And so uh, my neighbors and a couple of my SWAT guys and my girlfriend, they were in my front yard because they knew, you know, I told them when I get home, I'm whooping everybody's butt. And so they were expecting that guy right and so i came home i walked up i went walked right up to my car and they're all watching me i pulled the gun out i walked to about the front door area of my house put the gun to my head pulled the trigger and nothing happened far as they know um because there was a there was an issue the gun and the bullet was put into evidence there was actually even a gag order it was claimed to be a failed bullet
0: so what did you experience when it happened? I mean, just a misfire?
1: Yeah, like, it was crazy because uh, it, uh, one of the, I didn't really, one of my guys tackled me. And so it became kind of like one of those Jerry Springer moments, so to speak, for okay. lack of better terms. And um, they took it from me. Shortly after that, I went away.
2: Okay, okay.
1: But, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was weird uh, to be, precise about it one of my guys he asked me what i thought just like you did afterwards and i said i don't know why but for whatever reason i said you remember that scene in ghosts where you kind of where the, the dude d- dies and the black things come from out of the ground right. remember that a lot right. oh yeah that i would and he said because he was there he goes i remember you doing that and i'm looking i was staring down at the ground i actually was like wow that movie was right i I didn't huh. even feel it. And lo and behold, I was uh still alive. So it was weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you're kinda out of your mind at the time. Those type of things happen, but uh that's basically what I was thinking in my sick head at the time. Wow. So uh yeah, so that's how number one went down and uh that's uh that's actually was the beginning of the next nightmare.
0: <laughs> well let me let me stop you here and and ask you if someone's listening to this right now and they're kind of identifying with the the um, not just the pain or despair but but just they feel like the only good solution is to get out and if they're going to finally fix something that's going to be getting out of this life, uh, yeah. what what should they do right now?
1: I would say the absolute best thing that anybody could do in that predicament is to take one second of your time and think about who, um, who could I call or who could I talk to who I trust enough and who I believe in enough that could give me the answer that I'm looking for.
2: Hmm.
1: That's a very difficult thing to do in a moment like that. I can say that's what you should do. That's not obviously what I did, nor did I have the education in that at the time. And that's just a whole nother topic of why we need to highly educate our our law enforcement, our first responders and families about this matter so that it can become a common knowledge of when you get into this spot, um, that that is one of the things you can do is Call somebody who's been there and done that, so to speak, and go, hey, here's where I'm at. Can you give me some advice? Because I clearly, clearly, as you and I have talked about, if you look at pictures, there's picture. When you look at a picture of me, there's one or two pictures. I either have this horrible look on my face or I have a huge smile on my face. Yeah. In, In this day and age, I smile every day, man. Uh, you know, it's just, um, it's almost like a sick game in your head. You know, it tricks you, and it, it overpowers you, this mental health, uh, you know, disability or disease, yeah. whatever you want to call it. and um,
0: But it makes you believe things that aren't true. It makes you think that, that you're not loved, that everybody else around you would yeah. be better off without you. It, all these yeah. things that are not true. Those are lies. But and we absolutely. convince ourselves that that's the case. And and you would argue that, that in that moment, talking to someone and having them tell you the truth is actually going to help um, in that scenario, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, and, and and it can literally, it can happen. I, you know, I've been in this business, I think, like five years now. And I meet one-year cops, and I meet 30-year cops who have the same issue. And it, it doesn't matter who you are or what kind of training you are, man. If it hits you, you know, it's like anybody who wakes up with cancer. Mm-hmm. I was explained to me by a doctor. You don't ask for it. You just wake up one day with it. Yeah. And if you woke up with cancer, what would you do? You'd run to the doctor. You'd start treatments and therapies and all this type of stuff, and everybody would come to your corner and help you. That's what we do, right? Right. But when we get this type of disease or injury, we just blow it off. And what was explained to me is this disease is no different than cancer because it can clearly kill you. Yes. And, uh, you know, that's, that's an unfortunate thing, but yeah, absolutely.
0: So after your first attempt, you, you weren't out of the woods yet. Um, yeah. what, what did the next chapter look like for you?
1: So I, I went, I managed at the time I had a, I had a, crappy police chief who uh was more worried about his golf game every week than he was his guy so to speak i'm mm-hmm. not gonna bash his name or i'm not that sure. guy but hey, sure. that's what i was dealing with and so you know he basically called me into his office and said quote i don't know what's wrong with you but whatever it is you need to lock it up in a closet and get your ass back to work oh wow yes yeah, <laughs> sir so they put me right back to work a couple days after this whole nightmare went down, after they put me back to work. putting
0: a gun to your head and pulling the trigger, oh, they then yes put sir. you back to work. Yep. Yep.
1: Put me back to work. Um, the chief had sent me to some doodle, and he goes, yeah, a guy like you, because, you know, like we talked about, I need to be working. I need to be running. He says, you need to be busy. So, obviously, I wasn't physically able to do what I was doing, but mentally, they. so what their, their plan was is they put me in sex crimes. Juvenile sex crimes. Oh the my. <laughs> so here's a depressed, suicidal guy working child rape and all this type yeah. of stuff. Everywhere.
0: Yeah. That's only so, going to increase the moral injury that you're yeah. absorbing. Yes. Yes. Okay.
1: So, so, you know, a few months go by and that chief left by the grace of God in that time. And, um, you know, I started to physically get a little bit better um, from my injuries. I'd had my, I'd had my surgery. I had a couple surgeries. I had multiple shoulder surgeries, back surgeries, things like that. Right. And, uh, but nothing uh, was being taken place. Um, Work didn't mandate anything. Um, But the one thing that I was able to do at the time was that I had reached out to get some help uh, for myself because, you know, I wanted to be an athlete again. I knew what I needed to do, and I knew what I needed to do, um, you know, to be a leader on a SWAT team. And so I kind of reached out for some help through EAP, which failed miserably after about the second, uh, the second time. I tell a story all the time, man, a true story. The freaking therapist hit on me <laughs> and I thought it was a setup and, uh, you know, cause they'll do that in my lot of work. And right, right. So I left and I never went back. And so unfortunately within a couple months, you know, it progressively got worse, the depression and, uh, it, it it there? I I didn't see light at the end of the tunnel,
0: and yeah, that ultimately ended. that ultimately led to a second attempt, right?
1: Absolutely, yes, yeah. it did.
0: You told um, you told me this story before. Can you can you tell me when you came to the point of of trying again? Um, can you tell me what what the one thing was that that prevented you from going through with it? Yeah. <laughs> A smile. That's incredible. T- tell me that. Tell me. Tell me what happened. You were in your car, and uh, tell me what happened.
1: Yeah, no. So the second time was I was pulling into the cemetery to do it, mm. and on my way into the cemetery, right there in a the corner, was one of my SWAT guys. He was. Uh, he got called to a fight, and I said, "Well, let me go." help him fight these guys, and then I'll go do it. Because, you know, I wasn't going to let my guy go fight by himself. Right, right. As I'm pulling into a parking lot, right, to shoot myself. And um, when I pulled in the parking lot, he smiled at me. And uh, he's, he's a huge uh, former NFL football guy, um, one of the best-looking guys you ever see, beautiful smile, and, you know, his nickname was Darkness. He was uh, super dark-skinned and he had this amazing beautiful smile and he loved me and i loved him he was one of my dear friends still is to this day and when i saw him smile it changed the course i was like wow man i can't do this to him because he's gonna have to clean this mess up and i don't want him to have to live with this the rest of his life so i said let me go home and i'll do it when i get home and he saw the look on my face. He said, "I also had my hand on my gun, and I wore my gun on my chest. Right, I had a right. on that day. I didn't wear. I never wore a police uniform like most guys." Right. And um, he called another buddy of mine and the chief. We're all good friends. We're all SWAT guys. And, and they. So when I did that, I go, oh, I'm gonna go back to the office, do some paperwork, and go home. When I went back, they were waiting for me in the office. He okay. called him and said, Hey, man, there's something wrong with Doug again. Yeah. We got to intervene. I, yeah. I see the look in his eye. Yeah. They, and they had seen it days coming. You know, I started doing all kinds of weird stuff. I guess uh, I didn't know it, but at the time I had been giving off signs that something was clearly wrong with me. I was giving away a lot of my stuff.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I wasn't aware of it, is what the guys tell me. And so he called my partner and he said, Hey, man, something's wrong with Doug. I see it. And so he said, "Yeah, I think he's on his way back to the office." So my partner ran and got the chief, who was another. We were d- drug agents together, SWAT guys together. He had been the chief three days when this happened, and uh, so he ran to his office. He said, "Dude, we got to get Doug. Man, he's going sideways again." And so when I pulled into the PD, there was a handful of my SWAT guys there, and I was like, "Hey, what's going on?" And they were like, "Come in the office. We want to talk to you." And that was basically intervention. They they basically um, life changing. A Couple of them were crying. Yeah, uh, they were like, "Dude, you know, Doug, man, we love you, man. What's wrong with you, man? We you got to get help. We we need you." And uh, it it was kind of like the Grinch you stole Christmas. Remember at the end of that yeah. <laughs> when
0: the Our and I, heart partner three times that day. Yeah, right?
1: yeah, <laughs> it was what I needed to hear. Um it's what I needed to be done. And uh, the fact that my guys were loving on me um, is what I needed at the point. Yeah. And my chief, um, one of the other commanders said, Hey, man, we got to get rid of him, man. He's a liability. You know, I'm a guy who carries automatic weapons and, you know, I'm a leader of a SWAT team. You know, I'm, I'm doing all of this high speed stuff. And so I'm a liability. And uh, access to explosives, you name it, right? Right. And my chief looked at him and he said, no, he's one of us. We kind of, you know, we created this monster. We're going to fix it. And he said, and second, he's my friend. So don't ever say that again. He's yeah. one of us. We're going to fix him and get him back. Yeah. And that was his, attitude. that's still his attitude. He was pinnacle in, in changing the way we did business out here in Florida. Hmm. And um, they loaded me in a car and they drove me to a hospital in Tennessee Wow. 13-hour drive. Wow. And they sat in a hotel room for five days while I was in this hospital, while they figured out what was wrong with me. And then they took me from there back to Florida, and they put me into a uh, treatment center. Wow. And I spent about 45 days. And uh, not only once I was done, they, to include my chief, came and picked me up and brought me back. And my chief said, Doug, take some time off, clear your pay- plate, no rust. When you're ready, come back to work. Yeah. And I did. And he gave me my SWAT team back. I was still an agent. He gave me everything back that I had before because he told me, because go get help and get fixing. And I promise everything will be waiting for you when you come yeah. back.
0: He, yeah, he, he wasn't kept... threatening to take away who you were. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. No, he That's knew. incredible.
1: He knew, man. He was like, man, this, you know, he's, he's a good worker. I was a great worker. You know, I, I was officer of the year. I had all kinds of, you know, I was highly decorated Yeah. and it's, you know, he, he saw the change and, um, he uh yeah, I can't say enough good things about him. He's one of my dearest friends to this day. He shows up that, to every day we do.
0: Was his example and maybe others uh, were were the was that part of you moving from someone who needed help to someone who wanted to give help?
1: Yeah. Um so when I, you know, when I came back, it, it is the, the way life works. I, I my first day back, I wanted to see all the guys and, you know, I went to work to a roll call. Um and the first day, um, one of the police officers was sitting next to me and he goes, Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, yeah, sure. Yeah. I was very well liked in my, I liked everybody. Everybody liked me. I, you know, I, sure. I was uh, sure. that guy. And so I was like, yeah, sure. And he goes, Hey, can I ask you a question? He goes, when, um, when you were down there, did they put you on medication? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I go, why? He goes, because i 'm really depressed, you know, my girlfriend left me I 'm super depressed, and my doctor put me on medication. I just wasn 't sure if it was okay or not, and he, I, I figured I'd ask you for advice, and I went, "Wow, and then it was a couple of days later, you know, because the gossip, right Oh yeah who oh, yeah. went on, and I started getting phone calls, and I even had a chief call me and go, "Hey, I got a guy I'm concerned about. Can you give me advice?" And I, when I came back, I looked around and so I had two things going for me. I had my regular job and I was surrounded by spec op guys. And I went, wow, man, I'm not the only one. Like I could see the look in everybody's face and see how they were struggling. I came back and I was like, man, this is a broken system. And we have to do something about this. And I was so frustrated of how I was treated and the process that it took me through. I knew, right, and that's probably the SWAT guy in me, right? You know, precision, like, Hey, there's sure. a better system. There's a better plan and we need to do something about it. And I was so bothered by it that I called, um, a couple police chief buddies of mine, one of them being an FBI, uh, national Academy, big wig. And I said, uh, Hey man, I got this idea, and this is the problem. They were also communicating with me while I was out and getting help, so right. they, I knew them like that. And I said, I want to come up with a, a program that cops don't have to go through what I went through. And here we are today, five years later, probably. Or I'm told we're one of the biggest of uh, foundations in the nation now for helping police and first responders.
0: So your nonprofit is called Survive First. Um, can you explain where the name came from?
1: We were in a conversation and somebody just like you and I are doing, Uh and I said, um, you know, as a police officer, they teach you how to shoot and fight and drive and CPR and all this stuff. I go, but really what they need to do is they need to teach you how to survive first out here in this, you know, lack of better terms jungle yeah and uh they need and that's that's where it came from because listen you can teach anybody how to fight you can teach anybody how to shoot a gun or anything but really what you need to be teaching and i I say you as in the industry right you, you need to teach them how to survive mentally
0: yeah that's my passion is i want to see cops have a you know, healthier set of tools as far as resilience and coping mechanisms and just how to live their lives, that, that they would be healthier before the critical incident happens. And yeah. we'd be proactive about that, um, you know, as much as possible. And and I really feel like if I can help move that needle at all, then that's, you know, what I want to do. So t- tell me what Survive First provides. What, what, what kind of help do they do?
1: Um Survive First is my wife will kill me because I I can't recite the mission statement. But um, our goal, I, I like to say, our goal and our mission at Survive First is to take the no out of getting help. That's all I care about. And what I learned in this process and what I've seen is, um, police officers and their families they they don't get the help because obviously we all know cops don't get paid very much money so it's really difficult to raise a family and to be able for me it was $50 co-pays every time I go to the doctor right And I had two boys on the spectrum. So, you know, I had to, you know, I was constantly in the doctors with them. And, you know, the money thing gets kind of steep for me, right? It was doable, but not every cop has that opportunity. And so they don't get help because they can't afford it. The other thing is, is the education and training. What I've learned is most police departments, most police chiefs don't have it in their budget because it's not a high liability issue. And now more than ever, nobody wants to be a cop. So every police department is understaffed. Yeah. And by the time the training comes for mental health, it's not in the budget. The chiefs can't make that decision, so they go without it. Right. And so those were two big factors of mine that I wanted to make sure that that was taken care of. So back to the original question, what we do is if a police officer can't afford a copay. Then what we do is we have an assistance uh, fund that we do to help with the, pay the copays for therapy or treatment or something like that, right. Excellent. In, in, Excellent. whatever the term is. In house treatment, kind of like what I went to, like right. rehab. Um, or say they don't have a copay but they can't afford. Like who can afford to fly somewhere? Because you're not going to go to a treatment center in your hometown. And oh, I can't afford to you know buy a plane ticket seven hundred dollars because it's usually overnight. It's right. not like you can plan right. this. Right? Yeah. So if we have to buy a plane ticket, we'll buy a plane ticket. Um, we'll pay for co-pays. That's really what we've uh, refined it down to. Um, but we also work with uh, sister companies, other nonprofits nationally that, um, you know, if somebody needs a whole lot of money, what we do is we call other nonprofits and we go, hey, we got this. Can you guys help out? And they're, the really good ones out there do. And so we've built this team and we've built this uh uh, enterprise of people and organizations nationally um, that come to the table and make sure that that every police officer, every first responder, and their families—that's one thing we take pride in—is helping families too. You can't yeah. fix the problem and send them home to a nightmare, or vice versa. Right, right. And so, um, and especially like my kids, man. You know, I'd come home from you know a huge gun battle, whatever, right. And I'd walk through the door, and my kids were like, What well, dad's coming home today? Mad dad, sad dad, angry dad, years of that. Yeah. And so, you know, your kids are affected by this. Your wives, your spouses, my poor wife, I, I tortured her for years. Hmm. Um, unintentionally, for the most part, there's a lot of times when you get like this, you just don't care. Right. And uh, so, you know, families need help as well. And so that, is our primary goal is to take the no away from any first responder or their family from getting help.
0: That's fantastic. Now, is the best way to find your organization through the website?
1: Yes, survivefirst.us. And everything on the uh, webpage, there's an application for help on the webpage. There's numbers, there's resources Yes, that's the best way, and I highly recommend at least take a look at it and educate
0: yourself with it. Fantastic. I've got one last question. Sure. After your attempts to take your life, Mm -hmm. what good things came into your life after that point that you would have missed out on otherwise?
1: Oh, man, several things. Um, You know, my relationship with my wife is... Mm -hmm just incredible her goal in life is to make sure that i'm happy and healthy every day and it just when you're surrounded by wonderful people my kids love me um you know i'm I'm not that athlete anymore but i'm 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 having fun
2: yeah
1: um i i've met being in this industry tons and tons of people in this industry that love cops and want to help them and firefighters yeah and uh you know, nurses and all that type of stuff. Um, I have uh, three partners now that I'm on tour with, you know, when we do our speaking and traveling.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, we we're, uh, most people know it as trauma behind the badge. We have a show. We do things like that. These guys are um, have been there. Um, one of them is a September 11th survivor. He's uh, uh, been in multiple shootings. The other one was involved in the Pulse nightclub shooting. He oh, was wow. one of the guys that saved everybody. And um, there's they're both cops. And the uh, fourth one of us is uh, Chris Fields from um, Oklahoma. He was the famous firefighter that was holding the baby from the Oklahoma bombing. Yeah. And uh, so I have three of the most amazing guys, Raul, Chris, and Chris, and uh, they're in my life every day. And they help. We help each other. You know, Um, we, you know, we tell our war stories, but when, you know, when you surround yourself with the right people, um, that's a big help too. And they put a smile on my face every day. And now that I've had a little time, you know, I've had some years in in therapy and treatment and, and just time. Um, you know, my my head is and brain is not so bogged down and fogged up with the negative stuff. And I've been able to look at life a little different. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easier to realize how wonderful life is and how wonderful you can make it if you just get the right help, surround yourself with the right people.
0: God bless you, man. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thank you, man. I'm honored that you, uh,
1: you, you know, to have this conversation with you.
0: I want to thank Doug for sharing his story with us. His nonprofit, Survive First, is a great organization that provides real help to get the best possible resources to first responders who need them. Their website is survivefirst.us. And if you're going through a season right now where you're struggling, please don't believe the lies about you which have been bouncing around in your thoughts. You are loved. You are valuable, no matter what changes are happening. And you have people who still want you and need you in this world. So ask for help. There are several options in the show notes of this episode. And call someone you trust right now. If you appreciated what you heard here, please share this episode with a cop or someone who loves a cop. On the next episode of Hey Chaplain... So if you're if, if a city manager or whoever for a, for a city is trying to hire a police chief, they're going to expect the applicants to all have the National Academy on their resume, probably.
1: Yes, okay. you, you can see, and I've started looking at them over the last year or so as to what they're looking for. One, because I'm getting close to that part of my career, but right. also, what are they looking for? N.A. SPI? Are they not looking for any of that? What do they want? And. Almost all of them say FBI,
0: National Academy, or equivalent. Right, right. But that's the standard. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't list the other schools. Right. It's the N.A. (laughs) or somebody like it. Right, Um, Right. Because,
1: yeah, you're right. That's the standard. Everybody knows what that is.
0: The views expressed here are the personal views of the host and our guests and do not necessarily represent the views of any law enforcement agency or its components. Thank you for listening today, and as always, pray for peace in our city.